There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and this time round, we're doing musicals. If you've seen a show, then you already know how magical theatre can be. It's a two-hour live-action, barely affordable, unlip-synced version of Glee. Now, before we get into it, I'm going to tell you a little bit about myself, okay? If you were wondering who I am, I am a man just like any other man. Clearly, I do not earn my money running this podcast. If you're listening to it, thank you very much. But it's a bit of a niche as opposed to the you know Joe Rogan experience and things like that, okay? So, how do I make my money? I make my money being a freelance business trainer. Basically, I walk into companies and I train and coach staff. I have no problem walking into a room of complete strangers and for literally three days, walk them through best practice on various different topics. It's something I'm really good at. How do I know that? Well, I've been freelance for eight and a half years through a period of massive economic upheaval, a global pandemic, etc, etc, and I was still able to keep going. Clients still wanted to work with me, and I do well enough at it that I can pay a mortgage in London. Not the most expensive part of London, but mind you, a four-bedroom house anywhere in London's going to cost a fair bit of money, and if I can do that, I'm doing okay. So that is something I know I'm good at people like this podcast so clearly the presentation skills that i have from the day job i'm pretty good at overlaying them into doing the podcast and because i've had more than i've written more than a dozen history books and historical novels i'm pretty good at that too so before you start thinking is this gem just hi tuning in and gem's gonna say how awesome he is no the reason why i'm saying all this stuff is i know what i'm good at but i'm also at my age know what i'm bad at and when it comes to me I have no musical ability whatsoever. I couldn't carry a tune in a bucket, okay? So, I am not going to be singing anything here because I don't want to torture you. I have literally had my family beg me to stop singing along to the opening song of Goldeneye by the the movie, the James Bond movie, Goldeneye, as I try and impersonate Tina Turner. Literally, the family say, Please stop. 
I like music. I've done some episodes on music, but this one is about something that I do particularly enjoy, musical theatre. I know the cliche is you've got to be gay to enjoy musical theatre. I've got two kids. I love my wife very much. I'm straight, okay? But I still love a good musical. So this song goes out to the rest of you, those who've never seen theatre before. Because Broadway has never been broader. It's not just for gays anymore. And I'm going to show you, so does Hollywood. And not everybody in Hollywood is gay, okay? So, my point here is, yes, obviously there's some history behind it, but there's some really interesting elements specifically to do with pop culture around musicals. And going back to my original bit, while I will be good at explaining this stuff, Absolutely, I'm hoping Greg's going to stick in some stonking tunes for various people because if I try to start singing Les Miserables... I'm talking to myself. So, <laughs> what I'm actually going to do this time round is I'm actually going to go a little bit through the history to how did we get to this idea of theatre and singing? And the answer is, it's there from the very beginning. We know from records, from sort of like chronicles from the ancient Greek era, that they not only invented theatre, but also that theatre was largely sung. Now, we're talking two and a half thousand years ago. No musical records exist from that far back. All we can say is it was sung, haven't got a clue how. There are various pots that show you some of the musical instruments that were played at the time, things like the basic version of a flute, some kind of harp, a lyre type thing. So yeah, we know the musical instruments, we can guess at how things might have sounded, but we don't have any idea as to what their musical compositions would have been like. But what's interesting is, at the very beginning, it's there. It's not two different skills that, let's say, 300 years ago, somebody came up with a bright idea of smashing together. Not at all. And the reality is, if you're ever in a live environment, somebody singing has that power with you. This is why. I mean, the, the thing that occurred to me in my early 20s when I did go to a lot of nightclubs and I did go to lots of live events, and this is interesting, at my age now, it's all the idea of standing in, I don't know, the mosh pit in, in, in some sort of place like the Hammersmith Palais or something like that. It's probably not even called that anymore. Maybe the place has been torn down. But you get the idea. At my age, it's sort of like, no, I'd, I'd like a nice sit down. But even in my youth, I realised that the actual quality of the mix of the musical instruments and particularly the vocalist live is never as good as the album because you've got these sound engineers, you've got the, the layout, the, sort of, the acoustics are all perfect in the recording of the album. If you want to hear the best version of that song you love by that band, listen to the album. But that's not the same thing as being live. Seeing that lead singer sort of point out to the crowd and say, make some noise or something like that, or you having fun and all that kind of thing. You know, working with the crowd, there is an energy, a crackle, an electricity that happens in a good live event. Personally, I've seen lots of different people. I've been lucky enough to see Johnny Cash live at the Prince Albert. You know, you're talking about basically the Albert Hall. It just, you couldn't get a less likely place to have somebody like Johnny Cash. And he was, he was excellent, but he was old. 
But probably the most amazing live event I ever saw at Earl's Court, the old Earl's Court before it was torn down, seeing another place that doesn't exist anymore, was Prince. And, oh my goodness, just absolutely sensational. This is one of these things where words can't do it justice. It's always fascinating seeing written reviews of albums, and you cannot explain in words what a song sounds like. Just listen to the song. Simple as that. Yeah, the crunching guitars, the endlessly kinetic percussion and you know those are phrases that get used a lot in sort of musical editorial but it still doesn't tell me what the tune's actually like so it all starts in ancient greece with theater and music being wrapped together then we're going to jump forwards into the middle ages i'm going to look at europe by the way yes there is like no theater in japan and various sort of Chinese operas, etc. But the musical does not come from those origins. So we then get into the Middle Ages. Again, there are tiny fragments. We have a few little crumbs of the actual music. But if you know anything about the medieval time, there was a lot of singing. Hymns in churches, liturgies, and the various prayers by the monks. Monks were kind of famous singers. Uh, in essence, doing it a cappella is the modern phrase for that. You know, not, no, no musical instruments. It's basically just their voices overlaying each other. There are recordings of modern monks doing that. It is beautiful. You don't have to be religious to understand the kind of haunting melodies. And maybe it's in Latin, which makes it sound basically even cooler. So again, we've got traveling entertainers that seem to have used the kind of liturgical songs and that's a way that everybody could kind of... They could all hum the tune, basically. And that's how you could tell your story or do your theatre play. Then we are going to move into the 1500s. Now, because there was no collected music from ancient Greece, I am not implying that we're still influenced by that music today. Not at all. It was forgotten. It is just a, a note from history that music and theatre were, were intertwined from the very beginning. And clearly, as I said, live events, people know what people want. They want to sing along. They want a good story that entertains, all that kind of stuff. And so that was what was continuing into the medieval era. But again, it's not really what we're talking about here. And it's really in the 1500s, during the Renaissance era, that we start getting stuff that's looking closer towards musical theatre. And what we get is the Commedia dell'arte, which is basically clowns, comedians, doing popular stories two songs, really working with the crowds, far more bawdy than something like a traditional Greek play, if you like. This is obviously unsurprising. Things like Shakespeare also has a lot of crowd participation in it, if you look at the original versions of it, rather than the rather sort of more staid and almost upper class and exclusive elements today. Today, people wouldn't dare start getting involved or getting up onto stage in the middle of Macbeth or something like that. That's exactly what happened at the time of Shakespeare. And basically, these comedias della art, that's exactly what they were. Think of like a Shakespeare play with more singing. When you're a jet, you're a jet, all the way from your first cigarette to your last dying day. Or you've got the opera buffa, which is basically it's it's singing before the main play. So in other words, it's an evening of entertainment. First of all, we got some singing, and then separately, we've now got a serious play, like, let's say, Macbeth again, okay? So then we've got, in the 1600s, if we start fast-forwarding now, sort of about a century later, we're now moving into 
opera. And opera obviously is the starting point of musical theatre because you are there to hear the singing. I love to hear the music. I've got every lyric down. Opera is obviously far more serious than musicals. That's not to say that musicals can't be serious. They can be reduced to tears. They can be extremely powerful. But it's basically coming from opera. But it's really in the 1850s where we've got a French composer called Hervé and he does the operette, which is known in Britain as the operetta, which is still every everything is sung. It's interesting. If you look at something like Hamilton, you can argue that Hamilton, you know, is a 21st century musical phenomenon, but it's technically an operetta in the sense that nobody just stops and talks. The operetta, another example of that would be Les Miserables, because, again, everything is sung. Indeed, some parts of Les Miserables don't need to be sung, but everybody's still sort of like warbling away, even if they're just saying hello. It's like you don't need to sing everything. Okay, and that, if you like, that's what musicals start doing. But if we're going to start about operettas, I have to mention Gilbert and Sullivan, you know, things like HMS Pinafore. I can tell undoubted Raphael's of Jared Delson's symphonies. I know the proking chorus from the frogs of Aristophanes, and I can hum a fugue of which I've heard the music's dinner for. The absolute quintessential British musical operetta, Gilbert and Sullivan, that's where they are. Obviously at the height of the empire, so something like HMS Pinafore with its marvellous modern major general, I think that's what it is. What it is, is it's playful. It's incredibly hard to sing. It's beautifully orchestrated. The music is beautiful. But it's almost like a tongue twister. It's said so fast. Again, a bit like Hamilton. The rapping goes fast in it. Trying to keep up with various performers is just amazing in that. So once we're into the 1870s, we're now also into this other thing called like music hall. We're obviously well into the Industrial Revolution at this time. You are a working person. You've worked hard all week. You've got a bit of money in your pocket. So, hey, let's take the whole family to a music hall, vaudeville. And the idea of these things is there's something there for everybody. There'll be a bit of a magic act. There might be a strongman act. There'll be some dancing. There might even be a short play, you know, sort of like 40-minute play, sort of like one scene and done. You know, it's all one set because that's all they've got. And then they're moving on now to the acrobats or what have you. So it's a whole evening. It's a variety performance, which is something that's used still to this day, but is very much of its time. Once we move into the early 1900s, hey, we've got silent movies. And the cinema, the movies, are beginning to pick up attractions. But they are absolutely seen as separate to Music Hall. Music Hall is fine. It's not under threat by cinema, because whereas the movies can take you to places, show you scenes that you could never possibly mimic in a theatre, you know, something like you've got the whole journey to the moon. This is in the late 1800s, you know, from French so surrealist cinema, the Lumiere Brothers. But while it's visually spectacular, I can't hear a thing because it's a silent movie. You know, Chaplin, The Tramp, all that kind of good stuff. Buster Keaton, this is all great stuff. They're all huge hits. But if you like, on a Friday night, I could go to the pictures and literally see pictures, or I could go and have a good sing-song at the local musical hall. You had choices, if you like. But 
what changed everything was 1927's first talkie movie, The Jazz Singer. And what is interesting about The Jazz Singer is, yes, it has not aged well. It's got blackface. It's one of these things that, and this is one of the interesting things about Hollywood. Hollywood is obviously considered very liberal, certainly is trying to be a change of good in terms of culture and in terms of conversations about minority issues. This is all good, but there is no doubt that the history of Hollywood is intertwined with some pretty racist things, like one of the first big, important movies that you know, ran for like three hours that had incredible set pieces to it. It was a proper motion picture rather than just like a few skits performed and preserved on film is A Birth of a Nation from 1916, which is incredibly racist. It is almost unwatchable. Well, it is basically unwatchable to the modern audiences. It just, it's just awful. I'm not going to go into that movie anymore, but the point is, if you want to talk about, so where do the epics, where does the visual extravagance of Hollywood start? Unfortunately, you're going to have to bring this very racist movie into the conversation. Same thing with the jazz singer. When do we all start talking in movies? Jazz singer, blackface, okay, fine. But again, it's sort of of its time. Jazz singer is, is, if you like, culturally insensitive rather than being outright aggressively nasty and belittling of African Americans. That's exactly what's happening, by the way, in A Birth of a Nation. But jazz singer is, if you like, tin-eared rather than you know, trying to cause a race riot or something like that. So, it's interesting. We're going to show you that movies can make sounds too, and we're going to do it with a musical. And if you like, at that point, that was the death knell for musical theatre to be as big as the movies, because once you start replicating these movies... A thousand different theatres across the whole of America or across the whole of Europe could see it, and your little vaudeville hall can only seat, let's say, 500 people, something like that. So at that point, it's almost game over for the musical. But, like I said, if we're talking about the 1870s operetta Gilbert and Sullivan, etc., none of this stuff had been turned into movies because you kind of need to hear the tunes, don't you? So what it meant is that there was 50 years already of, like, musicals and musical numbers and operettas, etc., that could start being turned into movies. So for some of these writers that were still alive in the 1930s, they were already wealthy if they'd had a few big hits of their musicals, but now they became millionaires because all this stuff is being re repurposed and you need to get the rights and all that kind of stuff. And so... This is where you get the concept of the, the EGOT, the Emmy, the Grammy, the Oscar, the Tony. You know, if you can get one of one of each, then, you know, you really are one of the most impressive people of all time. And the way you basically get an EGOT is you are a composer. You're not going to get it for acting, really, for starters. You can't get a Grammy for acting. That's purely music only. So there we go. So, yes, yeah, so suddenly there was this this niche within a niche of, like, this is the absolute ultimate pinnacle of pop culture and indeed there are a few people who've won EGOTs including Whoopi Goldberg so yes it was technically for acting in those areas but she was singing in things like Sister Act so she was able to win things like a, a Tony for the the live stage version of Sister Act for example I will follow him follow him wherever he may go 
So once Hollywood is like really hitting its stride into the 30s, we get basically Busby Berkeley and things like that. And what's important is the music hall and musical theatre in, in terms of movies was helped by how grim the first half of the 20th century was. Music hall was fabulously popular with endless amounts of escapist kind of musicals coming out during World War One because A, the movies couldn't do it and B, people just wanted to forget the grim news of, of the front and the trenches and the horror and the gas and all that kind of stuff. Then pretty quickly into the 1920s, incredible social upheaval throughout Europe in particular. You've got the communist uprising obviously and civil war in Russia for example but all kinds of upheavals throughout Europe and obviously in America too you've got the stock market crash and then you into the 1930s you've got the Great Depression all of this led to things like Ginger Rogers, Fred Astaire and their amazing dance acts it's like yes my life is awful but for two hours I'm just escaped to see something fabulous I'm putting on the top hat tying up my white tie Brushing off the Busby Berkeley routines, utterly fantastical dance routines in these gloriously over-the-top musicals where the idea was, we're just going to entertain you. So if you like, these were big budget, these were big box office, these were hugely popular. Then we get into the, the 40s and 50s, I'll do the 60s in a minute, and you get things like, for example... 42nd Street, you've got Singing in the Rain, which is quite possibly the most perfect musical ever. You've got utterly beautiful choreography, you've got amazing tunes, hit after hit after hit. A lot of musicals have like three good tunes in them and the rest of them a bit meh. Think Guys and Dolls, for example. By the way, Marlon Brando, amazing actor, but he shows that he shares one thing in common with me. He can't sing, and with his guys and dolls, that is definitely his limitation. So particularly in the 50s, where we get the colour coming in, and there's even more reason to watch and enjoy these things. Obviously, you get back in the 30s, you've got the Wizard of Oz playing with this thing, where it all starts in the real world, all very drab and black and white, which is what cinema goers would have been used to. But then, when Dorothy steps out of the ruined shack into Oz it's then in glorious colour you know that incredibly overly saturated colour that you get in early colour films by the way the way they did that amazing scene where she she's she's in black and white and you know the, the inside of the house is black and white she opens the door so that's still got the door frame and her there in black and white and there's colour outside Think for a moment, how did they do that? This is way before, like, digital colour processing and things like that. And the answer is, you just can't be analogue. What it was is you only see the back of Dorothy. It was basically a body double. The whole thing was filmed in colour. However, the young actress and the interior were painted. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. 
but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Gray. She was literally painted gray. And then the real Dorothy, you know, in the full color outfit, steps into. And it's like, what a brilliantly simple way to solve a technical issue. Absolutely love it. And Wizard of Oz is, of course, a classic, but it is worth remembering when it first came out. Huge flop. We're now leading into the 60s, and now we're really picking up some steam. We get things like West Side Story taking one of those Shakespeare plays, Romeo and Juliet, and then taking nothing but the basic concept. And this is the thing that generally drives me crazy about Shakespeare, is that people say, oh, you know, it's the stories, it's the characters. And then they put it in a completely different time and place, but they keep exactly the same Elizabethan Tudor language. It's all like, but why? If we're in modern LA, like Romeo plus Juliet, Claire Danes and Leonardo DiCaprio in the 1990s, well, if you've changed everything else, why not also change the wording? That's exactly what they did in West Side Story. It's all like, no, nobody's going to talk like that. And also, it's full of songs. And it is one of the best and it's what's really interesting is my, my mother actually had the original album of West Side Story, and it's just got notes in it. It's sort of one of these things, it's almost like DVD extras before DVDs were even a, a whisper in somebody's brain, that it just sort of shows you the amount of effort that they put into understanding gang culture, particularly Puerto Ricans and white gangs in New York in the 1950s and they sort of get it right. It is historically accurate and this we're going to start moving into some history sort of like or interpretations of history in musicals because that's where I get to have a bit of a rant. Sometimes they get it right, sometimes they really don't sometimes they're sort of creating their own agenda. But the thing about West Side Story is, I mean, it won a ton of Oscars. It was a huge box office smash. For a while, it was the single biggest grossing movie of all time. That's how important West Side Story was. And then, almost insanely, 50 years later, Steven Spielberg remakes it and makes it better. And that shows you again the genius of Spielberg. If there's one thing I'm going to say about the remake, which is kind of nice idea, Steven... It, it, it plays very well into the modern culture, but it is a bit flawed that he just made the choice that when the Puerto Rican characters are speaking Spanish to each other, as they would do at home, 
he would not give it subtitles because he didn't want to other them. He didn't want you to think, okay, so the people who are white, you know, we can relate to them. We can't relate to the, the Puerto Ricans. And I absolutely get that. And it's absolutely an artistic choice. And, you know, it, it doesn't destroy the the actual movie. The problem is you have to be bilingual to understand everything. And not everybody can speak English and Spanish. It's one of these things where it's like, there is a practicality. There's a reason why subtitles do exist, because I can't speak Spanish. Now, I understand that I'm not seeing the plot of the usual suspects being, you know, I get the idea. The two people are arguing. And they're arguing over, you know, her love of this of this white boy uh, and all that kind of stuff. But what was amazing about Spielberg is, you know, this was a major Oscar winning major motion picture event in the 1960s. It was a perfect movie. There is some problems there with white people being given some tanning lotion to look Puerto Rican. That that's not good. But that's to one side. It's a perfect piece of cinema that Spielberg then made more perfect just absolutely mind-blowing again a sign of why he's an absolute genius so we're into west side story we're into sort of like other big mega hits of the 1960s and another one that actually what happened was the play itself came out in 1960 the movie came out in 68 and that is based on Oliver Twist. Uh, the reason why I have to say Oliver is because there's an exclamation mark at the end of it, okay? And again, a bit like West Side Story, it's like, Romeo and Juliet, is that a musical? I mean, a lot of musicals are love stories, but this is a doomed love story between two teenagers with sort of gang violence in it. But obviously it's one of the greatest musicals ever. And it's the same thing with Oliver Twist, the grinding poverty, the violence towards children, domestic violence too, drunkenness, thievery. Oh my goodness. You got a pocket or two, boy. No, it turns out to be one of the best musicals ever. You know, consider yourself one of us. Food, glorious food. Boy, boy for sale. There's just so many great tunes in Oliver. So you can see that everything is kind of alive and well. There are some weird ones. Lee Marvin and Clint Eastwood decided to in paint your wagon to sing. I talked to the trees, but they don't listen to me. Both being cowboys. Now, they're both great cowboys. They're both great actors. They both can't sing. Clint Eastwood is not renowned for his singing ability. So you can... Another two hard men like Marlon Brando, where it's like, well, I mean, I'll give you a 10 out of 10 for trying to sing, but uh, no, that, that doesn't work. And so it goes on and on. And what's interesting is, I've mentioned Les Miserables coming out, and when it first came out, it was an absolute critical disaster. Boy, did they not like it. In fact, it was taken off the stage it was reworked and brought out again and it still met the kind of lukewarm critical reception but it just struck a chord with people and what's interesting is because before the Hugh Jackman movie came out people thought it was about the French Revolution it's actually about the Paris Commune in the 1830s which is made clear with the the help of actual sort of like title points in the movie 
but in the theatre, it's just like, ah, it's, it's angry, revolting French people, as in revolution, not revolting, terrible, then it therefore must be 1789. It's like, no, no, it isn't. So what was interesting is that it was showing a very obscure to the rest of the world part of French history that people misunderstood was about a different part of French history. And it just grew and grew and grew. I saw it as a kid. My wife saw it. She was absolutely fell in love with it. Her and her sister would listen to the soundtrack over and over again. I don't remember having the soundtrack, but I do remember going to see it in the theatre and just sort of like being reduced to tears, as of course is required in Les Miserables. But I really didn't like the movie. And let's have somebody else, another tough guy who can't sing, Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe. Now, what's interesting is Russell Crowe used to be in a band in the 90s, I believe, and he can't sing. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? Sachin Barrett Cohen was given a bigger part. He's basically the innkeeper, the dodgy innkeeper, because, you know, he's played Borat and Ali G and the dictator and all these other things. And he can't really act either. Well, I mean, he's not a musical person, shall we say. So anyway, you're now into the point where what I find interesting is, and this is, well, like I say, this is one of the kind of unique bits, is when you look at things like Chicago or Cabaret or La La Land, all these sorts of musicals are now at the point where they do well at the box office. Okay, I'm going to definitely make some money from this, but they're nowadays seen very much as prestige projects. These are the things that can actually make us money, but also put some golden statues on the wall as well. It's almost a no-brainer. And so, particularly in the 1990s, musicals had pretty much died a death in terms of the cinema. There was still plenty of people watching them in the theatres, lots of revivals and things like that as well. But there was a period where they just had fallen out of favour with Hollywood. But then, when they started putting them out again, they again started making money and also getting Oscars. You get something like Eminem's 8 Mile. Now, this is probably not what you might consider a musical, but why isn't it a musical? There are periods where people are rapping, which is exactly the same thing as you get in Hamilton, and it made a load of money. And indeed, you get Eminem, Marshall Mathers, he ends up winning an Oscar for Best Original Song from that movie. So... It's just uh, lose yourself, by the way, is what the, the track is called. It's just absolutely amazing that that happens. But, you know, you get things like Muppet Movie. There are things that people don't think are musicals that are actually musicals. Things like the South Park movie has loads of songs in it. They basically decided to do that to be even swearier and more offensive because if it's sung, they figured that people would go along with it, which they... They clearly did. Then they've got things like the Blues Brothers, which again, it absolutely is an out-and-out musical. They've got loads of blues and soul singers in that. Aretha Franklin, James Brown, a just amazing list of great, great... A Cab Calloway, he'd been retired for years. And so, you know, it's just a great moment of, like, African-American musical history of the 20th century put into a basically a car chase movie... But that didn't do very well at the box office. However, it's definitely now considered a cult hit. So, it's all like musicals are everywhere. But now, after I've been singing their praises, metaphorically speaking, never literally. <laughs> Don't tell me not to sing, I've simply got it. I now want to talk about when musicals do history. I've done a bit of it with Les Miserables. 
and I pointed out how basically it's not the writer's fault that people thought it was a different bit of history. Okay, but then I want to talk about the year is 2017 and Toby Marlowe and Lucy Moss come up with a really interesting idea. They create a play that's, or musical, I should say, that's first shown at the Edinburgh Fringe called Six. And what Six is about, if you don't know, then you ain't a teenage girl. Uh, Because this has become quite the big hit. Indeed, it's even won a Tony. It's now critically acclaimed. It has been cleaning up in the the theatres. Six has been around, apart from when COVID came out, for six odd years and you know at the time of recording it's going to be turned into a movie exactly when exactly what's it going to look like will it be as good as the play i don't know hasn't come out yet but here's the thing six why is it called six it's because it's about the six wives of henry the eighth now the clever thing about it is they are a girl band and they're trying to work out which one should be their lead singer. So basically each one of them sings their life story and how they were treated by Henry. I'm that Berlin girl and I'm up next. See, I broke England from the church. Yeah, I'm that sexy. Why did I lose my head? Well, my sleeves may be green, but my lipstick's red. And then the best story wins, basically. So it's a lovely idea, and you can see that there's a lot of potential there, and obviously a lot of history there. The really clever thing is, Henry's not in it. As a sort of two fingers up at the patriarchy and at a very angry, violent king, Henry VIII, he's not even in it. You could say he casts a long shadow over it, but yeah, he's not actually in it. And the whole thing is set up as a piece of female empowerment, and... I have no problem with that, but this is where I think you're overcooking it, everybody, in the sense that if you would go back in time and talk to Catherine of Aragon or Anne Boleyn or whoever and show them this, I have no idea if they would like it, but they probably wouldn't understand it because this is the thing I think I have a problem with generally with like movies, TV shows, anything to do with showing the past because the past is a foreign land, as the phrase goes. It's very different cultures, very different way of looking at the world. Now, if you were to do today something which only included white men that basically told people of color and women how to live their lives, that would be historically accurate. That would not play well and nobody's going to put any money into it. So I absolutely get that we need to make concessions. But if you're starting to use the six wives of Henry VIII, two of which were executed to sort of say that this is some sort of statement of female empowerment, then you're going so far away from the history, what's the point? I mean, mind you, the clue is that they're trying to set up a girl band together. These women basically never met each other. It's just a little bit crazy. And and the thing is, though, I absolutely get why you're not going to put Henry in it. And, you know, we need more history about women, more history about people of colour. And indeed, quite often you get some of these characters, some of the the queens being played by people of colour. And I get that, but at the same time, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And I think we have to be a little bit careful because if we're only going to give good, positive, noble people in the past the people of colour roles, well, let me put it this way. Nobody's queuing up to play Black Hitler. And, you know, if you did do a movie with a Black Hitler in it, seeing his whole point was about sort of like racial segregation and indeed racial annihilation, 
it would really probably put people off the whole thing, even if that individual was doing the best performance, most accurate performance of Hitler, you probably couldn't get past that one. But again, it does seem to me that the bad guys can still be white men, but the good guys can be any colour, any gender, whatever. And it's like, I think we have to be a little bit careful with that, okay? I absolutely get and we should include people. And and if you like, a good example of that, and I've mentioned it in passing already, is Hamilton, where, quite frankly, the entire story is about white people. And yet there are hardly any white people in the actual story. There are people of all kinds of ethnicities. And as Lin-Manuel Miranda said, when somebody sort of faced him up on this, he said, this is the story of America told by modern America. And in that one beautiful line, it's like, yeah, I absolutely get it. And that's fine. And that's how we can end up having a black George Washington, even though the real George Washington had black slaves. So that works. And what's interesting there is... There isn't, if you like, a knowing wink to the audience. And this is where I think Six is so sort of blatant with its like, we are rewriting history, that it's sort of like, okay, so why even bother then? You know, if we're so far away from what actually happened, why bother? Whereas with Hamilton, it's like, yeah, okay, fine, I'm black and I'm playing George Washington, but everything I'm saying and doing really happened. And indeed, like Les Miserables, There is just no part of the Alexander Hamilton story that if you just read it on paper and you were doing all this, you know, before either of those plays were invented or created, you would sit there and go, yeah, this sounds like a cracking musical. But then again, something like West Side Story, like gang violence, like uh, teenage lovers, you know, that doesn't sound like it's going to be a a sing-songy, you know, love-a-thon. So it is interesting that... I think musicals sometimes, people remember, as I said earlier, the Busby Berkeley type stuff, the Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers type stuff. And it's sort of like musicals are so sort of flippant and so sort of light they can't do real proper serious history. And it's like, no, they absolutely can. If you like, the, the halfway mark on this is something like Oliver, in the sense that it's showing you some really bleak bits of British industrial history social history which was the whole point of dickens story you know the grinding poverty the poor houses things like that really really important to educate the masses about this particularly the upper classes and yet it's also sing-alongable with says jem inventing a new phrase i i don't know but if you want to get perhaps the most historically inaccurate thing out there it is now a live stage version. Got to got to do a shout out to Disney. I mean, Disney obviously changes a lot of stuff, even in, in stories, just to make them a bit happier. Spoiler alert for The Little Mermaid. In the original Hans Christian Andersen, she dies, okay? Whereas in the movie, not so much. But Pocahontas, real person. And the British settlers with John Smith, who was a real man. All these things real, really, real, real. And yet, perhaps the most egregious thing is right at the end, Pocahontas stays in America. No, she didn't. She went to Britain. And even worse, the English settlers, emphasis on the word settler, go home in their boat. It's like, well, that's not what happened in America. And yet the songs are beautiful and the the animation is absolutely fabulous. So, yeah, I mean, that's almost just... Oh, I mean, is that offensively changing the history? 
But again, you, you've actually got the Native American, the First Nations peoples actually being voiced by actual First Nations people. There was sensitivity to, to that element there. Effort was put into trying to show the culture. But we've also got, you know, like talking raccoons and etc. So it's a mixed bag. I, the thing is, though, I think a good musical, you are whisked away for a whole afternoon. And going back to those sort of more bleak times, you know, when things are tough... Just having a bit of nice escapism's good. I don't need necessarily to see Les Miserables or Hamilton, for example. But, you know, the fun and escapism of South Pacific, 42nd Street, Guys and Dolls, just enjoy yourself. Singing in the Rain, of course, being the, the granddaddy of them all. I'm going to say Singing in the Rain is the greatest musical of all time. You're the top... You're the Louvre Museum. You're a melody from a symphony by Strauss. You're a Bendelbot and a Shakespeare son. And you're Mickey Mouse. But it's up against some seriously stiff competition. And don't forget, La La Land was probably the most recent big winner. But even that one accidentally nearly won. And I'm hoping Greg will put in the sound of this. Of course, famously in 2017, just the same time that Six was being written, then basically that's when La La Land was announced as best picture, but actually it was meant to be Moonlight. To my family, Maman, Papa, Jeff, homage vous adore. Matt Pluff, you kicked this off. And Damien Chazelle, we're standing on your shoulders. We lost, by the way, but, you know. Guys, guys, I'm sorry. No, there's a, there's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won best picture. Moonlight won. Come on, this is not a joke. But that's not to say that La La Land didn't do well in the Oscars anyway, and again, got good reviews, and again, made money. Moonlight, I'm not going to talk about, because that's in no way a musical, but it's a very good film, for the record. So, there we go. We started in ancient Greece. We've gone through two and a half thousand years of history. We've talked about Europe, and we've also talked about America. We've talked about social history, and fortunately, this time around, I've been allowed to talk a lot about women as well. In fact... I, I'm going to finish off, well, just before I say that, look, click subscribe if you just come here for the musical stuff. There's lots of other things on this podcast too. Do say hello to me. I'm at Gem Deducci on Twitter. Please retweet, share, give us a review. All that stuff's great. But let's talk about the queen of musicals, shall we? Julie Andrews, a, a British national treasure who, with The Sound of Music and Mary Poppins, just, just, absolutely amazing singer indeed there was a movie after those two where she actually was topless on it because she was so fed up of being sort of like seen as almost half a woman sort of like oh you're sort of pure and you know whatever it's like no i'm a, a woman a proper woman you know so i you know i've got all the same bits as every other woman but you know just just her sheer ebullience in both those and and the fact that you know they're both considered classics 50 years later Mary Poppins is obviously just made up, but what is interesting is The Sound of Music is loosely based on history. Uh, what is interesting is right at the end, I, I do like the pedants pointing this out, but if, yeah, this might put a smile on your face, but at, right at the end, Climb Every Mountain, where they're going over the mountains to Switzerland to escape the Nazis, if you actually know the geography of the local area, which almost nobody does, but this is now out there as a piece of fact, they're going the wrong way. They're going to end up in Germany. But anyway, climb every mountain, ford every stream. That's it from me, and as always, another episode coming soon.
Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.